And I want to start this morning with uh, a rather startling text. Uh, if you hear it and, and, and understand what it's saying, it's kind of a shock to find this written um, and how that may be speaking to some of us. But this is what Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32 tells us. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. That's Proverbs 1.32. And I'm going to come back to that text several times today. If you want to write that down, that's a text I want us to keep in our mind. The title of the message this morning is this, Ready for More. Ready for more. Now, as many of you know, I love church history. Uh, I really enjoy reading uh, things from church history and books about church history. I'm the guy who likes to read the, the textbooks about church history. And that could be maybe a single volume that's kind of, you know, an overview of everything or a set of books. That's the best, right? Like a six or eight volume set covering everything from the apostolic era to the modern era. I love that. And I love the specific, you know, really focused stuff, you know, like whole volumes dedicated to just like a period of a hundred years and get really deep in depth. I, I love that kind of stuff. And I love when I read in church history specifically to, to read the stories of people from church history. So I love biographies of Christians, both famous Christians and people who are relatively unknown. Currently, I'm, I'm reading a, a rather small biography. It was just released recently on the life and thought of a very famous Christian professor and theologian who just died a few years ago. But just last year, one of the books that was really one of my favorite books that I had read during the year was of a relatively uh, unknown, a name that, that no, no, none of you, none of my friends, aside from Isaac and Bethany, no one would know this pastor's name. And yet I read this little biography of his life and his ministry in this little town of Kilsith in Scotland. And it was just incredibly encouraging to me, not because he was some great famous guy, just a faithful minister who really lived out the calling that God had given to him. And so I, I love those things because the stories of church history impact us in ways that we just often don't realize. The ideas, the people, the events of history, they really do shape our lives. Most of us, we just don't know about them because we don't tend to study in church history. So this morning, I want to use the lives and the ministries of two different individuals, two figures from church history, as examples and kind of illustrations for us as we're talking about this. And one of them is going to be a person you've undoubtedly heard of before. You've heard me mention them. If you've been paying attention, you've probably read about this person in school, whenever you were in high school, I would guess. But the other individual is a person that you probably have never heard of, or if you did read about him in a textbook, have just completely forgotten and really probably know nothing about him. Now, this second person, he was actually fairly famous in his day, but his name just hasn't carried forward to the modern era the way the other one has. But there's something that links these two individuals, and that is this little building right here. If you'll put that picture up for me. This is the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts in the year 1737. This is the third building that they, that they built, and that's a sketch of what it looked like. Now, the way this building connects these two figures is that both of the two figures we're going to talk about this morning served as pastors of this church. The first man is the one you've probably never heard of or don't know much about. His name was Solomon Stoddard. This is a picture of Solomon Stoddard. He was pastor of the church in Northampton for 60 years. 60 years as the pastor of that church. That's a pretty incredible legacy, right? To be a pastor in one church for 60 years. 
And, and while I have some, some significant differences with Stoddard theologically, one of the things I find really interesting about Stoddard's life is how his 60 years of ministry in this church at Northampton took place. In, in most ways, it was really a very normal ministry. It was filled with ups and downs, and it had periods of both quick, observable growth, where everyone was excited and thought, God's doing great, great things, and everybody's really excited, and then it had periods of just more slow, ordinary, behind-the-scenes, week-to-week type of ministry. The church at Northampton, while Stoddard was pastoring it during those 60 years, saw five of what they called harvests. These were, these were times that were the quick, observable growth. Everyone agrees, man, God is doing something amazing here. New people are getting added to the church. We're growing. We're excited, right? Five different times in this man's ministry over the course of 60 years that took place. The first event, the first harvest, took place in 1679, and then the second came in 1683. So those of you who are math people know that's how many years between the two? Four. Yeah, just four years, right? So, so God's doing something really great, and then that kind of you know, slows down, and there's a period of about four years, and then God does this another amazing thing, and everyone's real excited and, and built up and looking forward to, all right, God's going to do this again when this ends, right? Well, the third period of harvest comes to the church, but it comes in the year 1696. <laughs> That's 13 years later. Now, those are some large gaps, 13 years and even four years, especially to us in our modern culture, right? We live in a hyper-fast culture. We're waiting patiently for years for something to take place. That's pretty foreign to a lot of us, right? We're the people who get frustrated in a drive-through when it's going slower than we want it to. And I speak from experience, right? Like just, so a couple months ago, right, we were making all those big trips up to Iowa City and back, right, for Noah's Clubfoot treatment. And so as we're going, I got this email as we were getting set to go from Panera saying, hey, we want to give you a three-month trial, completely free, of our unlimited SIP club. If you've seen the promotions, basically it's every two hours you can go to any Panera and get the, any drink you want for free. You just give them your phone number. Oh, you've got your unlimited SIP club. What would you like? You place your order. You pull up. You pick it up. Done, right? So I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. There's a Panera right next to the hospital up in Iowa City. So every day when we go there, I'll you know, make my coffee here, drink it on my way, get another cup of coffee after we go to the appointment, drink it on my way back. I'm thinking this is the Lord's provided, right? It's free. It's wonderful. So since I've got this benefit, and it works at any Panera that there is, we've got one in Quincy. So I'm, you know, thinking I'm going to take full advantage of this. And anytime I go to Quincy to get supplies, have an appointment, whatever it is, I'm going to swing through Panera and get a drink, get myself a nice cup of dark roast coffee. But the Panera in Quincy has to be the slowest Panera in the world. And I have been to a lot of them, right? But I, I'm not, I can't count the number of times I've pulled in to that drive through and someone pulls in behind me, like typical in a drive-thru. So now I'm kind of boxed in. I get up there, order my large dark roast coffee. Is that it, sir? Yep, that's it. Great. We'll have it at the window for you. And then it's 10 minutes from that little place where I place the order around the curve to the window. And I'll be honest, by the time I get to the window, I'm a little annoyed and frustrated. If my kids are with me, they're a little annoyed and frustrated. Like, why does this take so long? And we're talking minutes, right? But that's the culture we live in. That's the day we live in. We don't like to wait long for something to happen. We get a little annoyed when it's monotonous sitting in a drive through line. We want something more exciting. I want my coffee. <laughs> but Solomon Stoddard 
as he led the church for 60 years in Northampton, had to wait not just 10 minutes for God to do something incredible, not just 10 weeks for God to do something incredible. He was waiting years sometimes for these big, exciting harvests to take place and the church to get really on fire for what God was doing. But what I love about the story of Solomon Stoddard was that he stayed for 60 years in that church, seeing only five great, exciting harvest events. He was not the kind of guy who rushed off after he saw the first one or the second one, thinking, man, that is so awesome. I want more of those. I'm going to go start a new work, go to a new church, do a different ministry so I can chase the high of these great success moments. He stayed in, and he continued to do the work. The third great season of harvest took place in 1712. That was 16 years from the third one. And then the fifth and final one took place in 1718, six more years after that, 39 years from the first great harvest that he had seen in his ministry. But what I see in that, and you may see this differently, and the way we see it is a lot of ways due to how we're wired up. If you're a little more pessimistic, glass kind of half empty type of person, you're thinking those gaps are massive. That's so discouraging. Why are we waiting so long? Can't God do more, be more exciting, right? Or you can be on the other end of it, and you can see what I see, which is an encouraging thing. This man stayed for 60 years, and the majority of his 60-year ministry was regular, normal, ordinary work of ministry, and he thought, that's worthwhile. And the church felt like, this is worthwhile. Because like I noted, the church there is the congregational church. Much like our church, they took a vote at some level of interval where they had the choice to vote to keep their pastor or get rid of their pastor. And for 60 years, they chose to continue to follow the leadership of their pastor, even in long gaps where things weren't very exciting, weren't really very visibly, woo, we're on fire. It was just the normal, ordinary. He was preaching the word, caring for the saints, encouraging and challenging the people to be on the mission that God had commanded for them, praying for them. That's what he did. And they said, we want that. We're not going to get caught up thinking it's got to be big. It's got to be grand in order for it to be successful. They valued the work that he put in for those 60 years. For us, I think it's good to see that example in church history and think about our own, our own understanding of what God is doing and our own expectations of what God is doing in our lives, in our church even. There are seasons of great harvest and outward growth and excitement that churches go through. And praise God for those, and we should long for those and seek for those. But there are also seasons of more normal ministry, of more slower growth, of less flashy results. And knowing that both of those seasons occur in the life of a church is really important for us to have in our own view. You know, I think about John chapter 3, verse 8 in regard to understanding how these things come about. Jesus tells us this expressly, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying clearly here and over in a text like John 6, it's the work of God to change hearts to convert rebels into submitted servants, to draw people into his kingdom, to build up a church, to give growth and blessing to a church. And so that means it's God who's causing those things to happen on his timeline, and we cannot control it. 
We can't control the wind. We can't make the wind blow when we want. We can't control the rain, right? Farmers, we know we, we need it now. We want it now, but we can't make it rain. God is the one who does those things, and God likewise is the one who will give these great seasons of harvest to a church, great seasons of excitement and blessing and growth to a church, but we cannot control that. Now, if you have your Bibles with me, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is going to be our, our primary text here, and it's, it's another striking text, as is the one I opened with from Proverbs chapter 1. It's a rebuke that Paul is giving to the church at Corinth. And it goes along these same lines, and it's a warning not only to the church at Corinth, but a warning to all churches in all ages, which means it includes us here and now. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants whom, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigns to each. For I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Verse 7, so neither he nor plant, who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, we're coming off of what we called that spiritual renewal weekend last weekend, right? We had additional services here. We had a guest speaker and a guest worship team here. And what I'm seeing and what I've been preparing and praying through the weeks leading up to this is that there are really two big dangers that come into a church, into your life as a Christian, as we have this type of event. The first is the thing I talked about two weeks ago. It's the temptation to fall into the traps of revivalism. The idea that we can produce results by our own efforts, right? So it comes out in common ways that we talked about. It comes out in this idea that we're going to try to reverse engineer certain methods or styles or productions. If we just do things a certain way, then, then God will do certain things in response, right? It's kind of like a, like a code. If we just do the right input, we get the right output. But that's, that's not how God works. A second danger is we can rely on personalities, thinking that, well, if someone special is here or some group comes in, then, then inherently they will prompt God to do some great work. The third common fault of revivalism is tossing out theological teaching and, and thinking and just going wholeheartedly focused on emotional experiences. It doesn't really matter what is said or how faithful it is to the scripture or how much produce, uh, growth it will produce long-term in us. If it just feels good, that's what we're going for. All of those are the hallmarks of revivalism, not real revival that God grants. It's a cheap imitation of the real work that God does. And I don't want us as a people to get distracted and look to the fake thing and settle for the fake thing when what God has as the real thing is so much better so much better. So Paul is combating this ideology here. He's making clear, listen, persons and methods are never the point. 
Never the point. Whether it was, he says, Apollos who is teaching. And what we know about Apollos is he's a really great speaker, a wonderful communicator. He is engaging and exciting. He knows how to draw a crowd. He's a person you like to come and hear speak according to the book of Acts. So whether it's him that's speaking and teaching and leading you, or Paul says, it's me, who Paul's enemies continually mock him saying, you're not a very good speaker, Paul. Apparently Paul's a better writer than he is speaker. And Paul says, look, it doesn't matter if it's a guy who's really, really engaging or a guy who people are making fun of as he preaches. The point is not the messenger. The point is that the work that's being done is just like one who plants, one who waters. The only thing that matters is when God gives growth. So we need to guard against the danger of revivalism. And I think for those of us who were here all weekend last weekend and we're enjoying that, connecting with that, probably this is something we need to guard our own hearts against the most. But all of us can be drawn to these same temptations no matter if we were here last weekend or not. We can draw, we can think that there's something to just having a special work and a special season and that's when real change is going to happen. So we can kind of get into this, this idea into our mind that, you know what, I believe God can change me. I believe God can do great and wonderful things. I believe God's mighty. I believe God can do this. But I just kind of think that's probably going to happen on some really big awesome day at some big awesome event. I mean, I don't really expect that kind of change just on a, you know, August 7th. <laughs> like, that's just a regular Sunday. That's a temptation all of us have to watch. The other temptation, though, that's just as deadly, and for some people, for some of us in this room even, this is the greater danger right now. It's the danger of complacency. Complacency is the temptation to settle into a state of negligence or carelessness. If we go back to that first verse I read at the start of the message, the Word of God says this, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32, For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. So I've said it this way many times to you. Contentment is a godly virtue. Complacency is a deadly vice. There's a big difference between being content with your life and with what God has given you and the way he is leading you in your life and becoming complacent in your life, seeking nothing more, longing for nothing more, desiring not to grow, not to change, just coasting. Paul addresses this issue in that text we just read in 1 Corinthians 3 as well. He begins with that rebuke of the Corinthian church, right? There's still, he says, infants in Christ, and he doesn't mean that in a great way, like, look how cute the babies are. He says something's wrong because you're not growing, I love infants, I love babies, but they are supposed to get bigger. <laughs> They're supposed to grow. Amen. <laughs> the parents in the room, yes. These people were complacent in their spiritual lives instead of pursuing the growth that God intended. So he rebukes them. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. And even now, he says, you are not ready. You are still of the flesh. That's a stinging rebuke to have someone say of you and your walk with the Lord. But it's a really common reality especially today for so many people who profess to be Christians in cultures where making a profession of faith costs them nothing in real life. 
So what that looks like, someone who makes a profession that's not really genuine, who's, who's complacent in their spiritual lives, what it, what it looks like in terms of practical application for you and I, things to look for in our own lives as warning signs, right? The light that comes on on the dash, and it's not a farm truck, so you want to actually fix this one, right? The, the indicator something's wrong is if you're going, yes, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm just going to attend church every now and then if nothing's better on the calendar. And when I'm there, yeah, I'll listen to the lesson and the sermon when I get to, to church. But, you know, I'm not going to really read or study the Word of God or practice spiritual disciplines in my daily life. I, I'm okay. Just when I show up, I'll get what I need, and I'll be okay till the next time. You know, I, I might give financially to God when I've got some excess, when it doesn't hurt my other goals. I mean, I've got goals financially, right? So I don't want to encroach on those. But if i got a little extra, sure, I'll give that to God, no problem. Instead of being generous and faithful and regular in your giving as God tells us to. If you find in your heart that you're going, you know what, I think God and I are probably pretty good as we are. Like we have this kind of, you know, an understanding. We kind of keep our distance, but well, I'll show up. I'll ask him for the big stuff, right? Very casual. If you think that's good enough instead of being deeply, totally committed to seeking him, obeying his ways, and engaging in the mission he's given you. Listen, to live a life of complacency like that spiritually, it costs you nothing in this world. You can say you're a Christian and act that way all day long, and no one's coming after you. No one cares. If you're that kind of Christian, fine. You're not doing anything, so why would they care? Why would they be bothered by that? They'll leave you alone. And yet what God says is, listen, if that's your Christian life, if those warning lights are on for you, then pay attention because you're headed towards destruction. It's not what real Christianity demands of us. Paul rebukes these individuals in the Corinthian church for their complacency. And so through the word of God speaking to us today, God's giving us that warning to heed to. Now, I want to go back to Northampton. I want to talk about the second individual. And the second individual is one that I'm pretty sure all of you have heard the name of before. The man, the, the Reverend Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is a looming figure in church history. He's probably the greatest theological mind ever produced on American soil. I've talked about him before in messages. I've told you he is such a convicting and powerful example of faithfulness in the Christian life and in ministry. And I've talked about him in sermons and teachings here before. Just to refresh your memory about Edwards, at age 23, Edwards became the assistant pastor of that congregational church there in Northampton, Massachusetts, serving alongside Solomon Stoddard at that time, who was actually Edwards' grandfather on his mother's side. And at age 26, in the year 1729, Jonathan Edwards became the sole pastor of the church. After 60 years of ministry, Stoddard finally retired, turned everything over to Edwards. Edwards became the, the sole pastor of the church. And a few months later, Stoddard ends up passing away. Now, Edwards, at this point of his life, though he's only 26-year-old, is already a man of deep religious devotion. He's very, very committed to God, very devoted to living his life in a way that pushes back against complacency, that seeks to glorify God in everything that he does. As I've talked about before, Jonathan Edwards very famously wrote a series of, of resolutions, which I've shared some of them with you before, and I have them hanging in my office if you'd like to go in. The poster right to your left when you walk in the door is Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. These were commitments he made and reminded himself of every single week he read through the list to remind himself. And what's amazing is Edwards wrote the resolutions when he was between 18 and 19 years old. 
Before he was a pastor, before he had, had really gotten a lot of great experience in life, this was a young man saying, I want my life to count. I don't want to become complacent. I don't want to settle. I want to grow in God, and I want to set myself up for a lifetime of growth in God because he took to heart the wisdom of the word of God, which says, again, Proverbs 132, the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. So Edward said, I need to guard my heart, I need to guard my life against the temptation that comes in every single age to fall into the trap of destruction that is complacency. And so some of the resolutions Edwards wrote, I mean, think about if this was a resolution you made for your life, just if you had one of these, and I'm going to read you a few that Edwards put down about how he wanted to live his life fighting against complacency. Resolution number five read this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Number 30 says, resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. Right? There were no off weeks for Edwards. That's what he's saying. It wasn't just, well, okay, you know, we'll wait for the big event. We'll wait for the big stuff. No, every single week he wanted to be growing closer to God. Resolved, never henceforward until I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but rather entirely and altogether God's. Resolved, never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my sins. 61 says, resolved, that I will not give way to the listlessness which I find unbends and relaxes my mind from being fully and fixedly set on God, whatever excuse I may have for it. Here's a man at 18, 19 years of age writing down this simple belief. I don't want to become complacent in my life. That's what he's resolving to do. And so he begins to seek the Lord to help him live out these resolutions. He reads them every single week and asks the Lord for help every single week to live these things out practically in his life. And then begins to pray for others to have the same convictions, the same beliefs, the same passion, the same avoidance of complacency, especially after 1629 when he becomes the solo pastor there at Northampton. And in 1734, running into the year 1735, Edwards has just been spending years doing the regular faithful work of ministry, preaching the word, praying for the people, just been doing what God has called him to do. And God answers his prayer to not let stagnation and complacency rule over his life and the life of others around him. And God pours out real revival at the church in Northampton. At the same time, begins to pour revival all over the country. And it's what we call now, looking back, the first great awakening. It was truly a divine act of God to bring about real revival across multiple communities and multiple churches all across America. And the results were real and powerful and life-changing. Not just good moments where people got like, really excited, but they produced lives that were changed forever because of the power of God at work. And the church, having as we said, seen various harvests under Stoddard, but having far more years of regular, ordinary ministry, and having spectacular seasons, but then seeing seasons where nothing amazing was happening, that church chose not to stay stagnant and complacent. They didn't just say, you know what, the majority of this is pretty normal, and we're always okay with normal, and we're just never going to expect or look for anything more than normal. No, they kept coming back to a posture of being ready for more from God. 
They were seeking that. They were praying for that, looking for that. And God, in his perfect timing, answered that prayer and brought real blessing to that church. That revival of the Great Awakening was far greater than the five previous harvests that the church had seen. So I I love this because I look back now to this church at Northampton in the late 1600s and early 1700s, and the point of it is this. No matter who was leading the church, whether it was Solomon Stoddard or Jonathan Edwards, they were simply servants. Just like in the first century, Paul and Apollos were just servants. One was planting, one was watering. They were just doing the regular, ordinary work of ministry. And God reminds us that neither he nor plants nor he who waters is anything, but it is God who gives growth. And when God saw it was time for growth, he blessed the church with growth. So for us today, knowing that that's true, biblically knowing that's true experientially in the history of these churches that we can look at in the history of Christianity, we have to understand because we don't control God or what he does any more than we can control the wind, where it blows, and when it blows, we can understand that this is what the life of a church will normally look like. It will have ups and downs. It will have seasons of great harvest and seasons of slower growth too. The big idea that I want us to get into our souls is that we need to be resolved to fight against complacency, to guard against relying on revivalism, and continually be ready for more from God. In two weeks, on the 21st, we're going to look at another church, but not a church in Northampton or somewhere else in the Americas or in church history. We're going to look more at our church directly here in Nelsonville. We're going to talk about our identity as a body of people. We're going to talk about the values that we have in this church and the vision that we have to be ready to go into the future that God has for us. But today, before we get there and before we get excited about the future, we need to do some internal work. We need to examine our hearts and our lives and prepare ourselves and posture ourselves rightly to be ready for more from God. We need to press back on that temptation to look to revivalism to think we need to get certain methods or styles or something big in terms of production in order for God to work. And we need to be ready for God to move each and every week that we come in here. We need to be praying for God to do that each and every week we come in here. And to do that, you have to fight against the temptation to become complacent in your life. To say, this is just the way I am. This is just how I'm wired. This is just the way things are for me. And to say, no, I know the power of God is much greater, much bigger than what I've experienced before. And I want him to change me, to grow me, to take me closer to him than I've ever been before. To begin praying that way, waiting and expecting God to give us a great gift of blessing. You know, the biggest lesson that I draw from Jonathan Edwards' work is this transformative thought. What I want you to get to. The reason for taking Christianity seriously and for fighting against complacency, for being intentional with our own lives, is because of how glorious and beautiful the gospel of Jesus Christ is. This is what drove Edwards, was he understood who God was, what God had done. And so he knew, I can never settle, I can never become complacent because the God I serve, the God I worship, is infinite in glory, infinite in goodness, infinite in blessing, infinite in kindness. So I can never say, I've got enough when God has an infinite amount to give. 
When you and I really understand who God is, when we really understand the gospel, that that God Almighty, the one who's created everything that exists from from the tiniest of insects to to the biggest forests that we can go walk through to the stars that you can see at night, God, the one who's made all of those things, all the grandeur of this universe that exists, that God wants a personal relationship with us these insignificant little creatures that live here on this earth in this little remote place that we call home here in the middle of nowhere in Missouri, that God wants a relationship with you and has blessings to give you and wants to grow you. When you see him and how big and glorious he is and you think about what he did, that he came, the God who created everything came and lived a life of suffering, a life of mockery, a life of of abuse towards himself, all to go to the cross and die in your place that your sins will be put upon him. When you understand that God and those actions, you can't settle. You can't become complacent. Thank you, Jesus. I've got my get out of hell free card. I'm good for now. That's not the response of someone who understands the gospel. That's not the response of someone who trusts in this God. And Edwards got that. Everything then in Edwards' life was, I want to know more of him. I want to receive more of him. I want to be closer to him. That's what you and I need to have in our lives too. The only way we get closer to God, the only way there's a sustaining change in our lives is when we deeply, truly understand the gospel and who God is. Nothing else will motivate you for the long run. No service you come to and feeling you get in here is going to sustain you in the long run. It has to be your understanding and experience of this grand God and the amazing good news of his gospel. So as the worship team comes and we get ready to respond this morning, I want us to think about how we need to get prepared in our lives, how we need to apply these lessons We need to look back on the temptation to lean into and look to revivalism and instead say, no, it's not about methods, it's not about production, it's not about certain people, it's about a God who works actively in this world and we will seek him and long for him to do something each and every week, each and every day in our lives. And we have to fight against the temptation of complacency, of just being content. This is just who I am. This is just my struggle. It's never going to change. You know, it's just the way things are. No, you can't be complacent. You have a God who's so much greater than your struggle, so much greater than your sin, so much greater than how you know him right now. So remember the warning of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32. The simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. This morning, we have the chance to respond to God and repent of the areas where maybe we've become complacent. Maybe we've said, you know, that's just my sin. That's just my weakness. And I'm not really seeking God to change me in that. Today, we want to come and lay that down. Don't turn away from God today. Don't become complacent. Don't be foolish. Don't head towards destruction. Come to Jesus, whose forgiving power whose transformative power, whose love and kindness is seen so gloriously in the gospel. The Jesus who is here right now on this Sunday to do something in your life as you come to him, ready to receive more of who he is. 
Father, I thank you for the time that we have had this morning. I thank you for the word and the message that we can hear you speaking to us through these texts. And Lord, I thank you for the example of the church in Northampton, Massachusetts, Lord, and how all those years ago you were working through that body of people, through those ministers that you had placed there, and the lessons that we can learn, Lord, as we see those lives played out and the way you worked in those individuals. But Lord, I pray that today we would not be content with just knowing some things about what you've done in the past but that, Lord, we would push back against the areas where we are complacent in our lives, the areas where we're just settling in, thinking that's how it's going to be, and instead would look to you, the God whose glory and grace and power is far greater than anything that we may be facing in our lives. And, Lord, I pray that we would be ready today and we would seek today more from you. Help us to respond rightly, to lay down our sins, to lay down our burdens, to come to you in faith and trust, asking you to do what only you can do and what we believe you will do in your people who seek after you. Give us strength to do that and respond in this time. Today we pray, amen.